Howdy, everyone, and thank you again for tuning in to the Jeffersonian Tradition. Before we get started, I have a couple of things to go over. For now, the podcast is mostly ad-free, and I sure would like to keep it that way. You can help me out with that by becoming a supporting listener. If you find value in the podcast, there's a link in the show notes page that lets you contribute to my work, and that'll help keep the podcast going and light on advertising. If you're not comfortable with a recurring contribution model, I've also set up a Cash App profile for the show, so one-time contributions can be sent there, and all of this information is also listed in that show notes page. If you contribute at least $4.99 per month, you're eligible for membership in the Ward Republic, which gets you one phone call with myself and the other Ward Republic members each month. And support monetary freedom today and head over to our new sponsor at www.defythegrid.com to purchase your gold backs. I have an affiliate link in the show notes page as well. And if you use it, I will get a 1% commission. So click on my link in the show notes page and help fuel monetary decentralization today. And don't forget to download the MeWe app and search for me so we can be friends and then I can add you into the show's private MeWe group so we can have sane and rational discourse around historic and current political topics. And without further ado, let's go ahead and get started with today's topic. All right, today we conclude our study of Ariel Dabney's New South speech to Hamden Sydney College. And again, this is for the time being going to wrap up our critique of the corporate form. So recall from last episode, we left off with Dabney recognizing that there is a new era and hence there must be a new South. So he's again in that episode, he called out the six major things that he saw as a byproduct of the Lincolnian or Hamiltonian system winning out during the war for Southern independence. So where we're going to pick up today, he's going to talk about guiding principles for the new South and the temptations which she must avoid. So basically he's going to say, if the New South has to exist, or if it has to come into being, what is it going to be? What form is it going to take? What are the social norms going to be? And so he has a lot to say on this topic. This is probably going to be our longest episode of this particular miniseries. So go ahead, strap in. Uh, we're going to have a great time. I, I promised R.L. Dabney is a very captivating speaker, in my opinion. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. What manner of things shall the New South be? To prognosticate or prophesy is not the proper part for us to play who fell with the Old South. For us, a more modest part is appropriate. We shall claim our prerogative forever of defending our own principles, which a decadent country has pronounced too elevated for it to tolerate, and of consulting our own self-respect. Justice to you requires that we shall leave you to guide your own destiny in that new and untried sea into which you are launching. But there are some principles which we may safely inculcate on you, because whatever else may change, these cannot change. The glory of our old independence and its history and the beneficence of the Confederate principles of our old Constitution concurred to teach us an exalted and perhaps even an overweening appreciation of the value of such political institutions. But we do not forget that other people have had other forms of government, whether aristocratic or regal, and under them have had their share of the domestic virtues of patriotism, of civilization, of Christianity. But under the illicit and dirty oligarchy of which our present regime is a virtual specimen, no people has ever had or can ever have anything but corruption, ignominy, and vice. And so in this section of the speech, right off the bat, Dabney's saying, now that our old ways have passed, the new order of the day will be corruption, ignominy, and vice. Now, ignominy, if y'all don't know the definition of that word, Oxford defines it as public shame or disgrace. Now, think of that. A lot of people on the left saw Trump in that light. Uh, just about everybody who has 
a brain cell left thinks of Joe Mussolini in that fashion. They are a public shame or disgrace. And the corruption is just out in the open now. Look at everything that's been going on with Pfizer, Moderna. You have Congress members who are openly invested in these companies, openly pushing the favorable legislation. That is the order of the day. And Dabney told us to expect that because now there was no decency left in government. The Again, the order of the day, it can never have anything except corruption, ignominy, and vice. So right off the bat, he's telling us what to expect. But let's go ahead and get back to the speech. Our best prayer for you is that out of the present foul transition, a good providence may cause some new order to arise which is tolerable for honest men. The changes implied in the introduction of this new order may be accepted by the old confederates as old age, as infirmity, or as a not distant death. They must be accepted by me as the inevitable. But the principles of truth and righteousness are as eternal as their divine legislator. These must be upheld under all dynasties and forms. Here in one word is the safe pole star for the new south. Let them adopt the scriptural politics in full assurance that they will ever be as true and just under any new regime as under the one that has passed away. Let them trust in the fact that righteousness exalteth the nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. That wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times and strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. That he that walketh righteously and speaketh uprightly, he that despiseth the gain of oppressions, that shaketh his hands from holding of bribes, that stoppeth his ears from hearing of blood, and shutteth his eyes from beholding evil, he shall dwell on high. His place of defense shall be the munitions of rocks. Some of the applications of these unchanging principles are obvious to experience guided by truth. Permit me briefly to unfold three of these to you which are shown to be timely and momentous by the special temptations to which a subjugated people are exposed while passing of necessity under a new and conquering system. And just another quick pause before we get into Dabney's three points here. So let's think about what he's saying. He, he's saying, look, even though we cannot guide you, our time has passed, our generation is exiting stage left, so to speak. Even though we cannot guide you, there are certain principles which are eternal. There are certain things that if you keep this in mind, you will still be a righteous and upright people. So think about what he's doing here. He, he's basically acknowledging, look, in terms of government, all you can expect is corruption, ignominy, and vice. But to the people, he's saying, you can rise above this. You can be better than your conquerors. You can be better than the heavy hand of government that rules over you. Even though you are a subjugated people, never lose sight of yourself. That, and that is a very powerful message, especially to that first generation of people being brought up in the New South. That is an extremely powerful message. And even for Southerners today, we can rally around this. We can say, yes, we had a way of life that obviously it had its problems. Nobody wants slavery here in the 21st century. Nobody at all is advocating for that. But at the same time, we can say there were things worthy of preservation in our way of life, in our culture, in our heritage. So this is what he's saying. You people of the New South, you men of the New South, be better than your conquerors. Be better than us. Be different from us, but also be different from them. And let's go ahead and get back to the speech. First, one plausible temptation is to conclude that the surest way to retrieve your prosperity will be to become like the conquerors. This is an inference as false as it is specious. The fact that your fathers are conquered may ground a good inference, perhaps, that you should seek to be in some respect unlike us. May you be unlike us in being more fortunate. 
But a very brief observation of history will teach you that violent aggressors and overthrowing their rivals also usually prepare their own overthrow. Their calamities are only postponed to second place. The Jacobins overthrew Louis XVI, but Bonaparte crushed the Jacobins and Europe crushed Napoleon. Shall this be the best reparation for the miseries of the fall of the Confederacy? That you shall share for a few deceitful days the victor's gains of oppression? To be overwhelmed along with him and his approaching retribution? Be sure of one thing. His curses will come home to roost. In order to escape the fearful reckoning, you must not only make yourselves unlike us, but unlike them also. The North triumphed by its wealth. This is the temptation to the New South, to which I already see ominous symptoms of yielding. To make wealth the idol, the all-in-all all of sectional greatness. I hear our young men quote to each other the advice of the wily diplomat Gorskachev to the beaten French. Be strong. They exclaim, let us develop, develop, develop. Let us have, like our conquerors, great capitalists, great factories and commerce, and great populations. Then we shall cope with them. And so to this point, think about our previous episode when I briefly touched on Reconstruction. The South was financially ruined after the war for Southern independence concluded. I, I mean, there was hardly any capital whatsoever down there. So you had a faction in the 1870s, mid-1870s, and then all the way up through the 1890s. You had a faction of New South advocates who basically said, whatever it takes, we just got to get Northern capital in here, and we actually just need to develop and have these Rust Belt cities. Well, at, you know, at that time they wouldn't have been Rust Belt, but we need to develop, we need to copy them in every way, and we need to do whatever it takes to get their capital in our pockets. And Dabney here is excoriating that view, and he's saying, be careful what you want to throw away. Be, be careful that you don't become so much like them that you lose sight of who you are and what made you special and what made you unique. So here he, he really is preaching an extremely powerful sermon. He's saying... Even though we lost, there's no reason to be ashamed of where you come from, of the blood that flows through your veins. And let's get back to the speech. Now here is a path which will require of you the nicest discrimination and the most perspicacious virtue and self-denial. On the one hand, it is indisputable that under our modern material civilization, wealth is an essential element of national greatness. The commonwealth which presents a sparse and impoverished population in competition with a rich and populous rival will come by the worse in spite of her martial values and may make her account to be dependent and subordinate. Hence, to develop the South is one of the plainest duties of patriotism. To increase its riches is one way to increase its power of self-protection and a knowledge of, as well as a hearty and diligent practice of, the industries of production are among the civic virtues which it behooves the New South to cultivate. So much is to be asserted on that side. But on the other side lies the deduction that all our section has to do is to imitate the conquering section in that one of its qualities by which it got wealth. To make the appliances of production the all in all. To simply exclaim, as so many do, of the factories and mines and banks and stock boards and horsepowers of steam and patent machines, these be thy gods, O Israel. This would be a deadly mistake. And so along with the inevitability factor, Dabney here is saying, yes, we need to develop the South. There is something to be said of, of having the power of self-protection through industry. However, we need to do it in a distinctly Southern way. We don't need to become like the North or the Yankees where we just feel that 
Profit is the only thing that matters, and as long as I get mine, screw everybody else. And think about that last exclamation. To simply exclaim, as so many do, of the factories and mines and banks and stock boards and horsepowers of steam and patent machines, these be thy gods, O Israel. So what he's saying there is wealth had a tendency to corrupt, or extreme wealth had, a, had an extreme tendency to corrupt. And this is something we need to understand from the Southern mind in the antebellum period. When they looked at the great manufacturing cities of the North, they did not see a society that was affluent as a whole. What they saw was a conglomeration or a consolidation of wealth in a very small number of hands. And then what they saw were the tenement housing and everything else. Now, granted, yes, the South had slavery, and that was horrible. That was absolutely atrocious. But... At the same time, they were saying, well, look, we at least provide the bare necessities for our slaves. They have food, they have clothes, they have shelter. That is more than New England paupers can say. They are tossed out on the street. Their women and children have to toil away in factories, this, that, and the other. So this is what Dabney is saying, that even though the South needs to be developed, it needs to be developed in a distinctly Southern way with an eye toward the humanist aspect. We must be clear that base materialism is not the Southern objective when it comes to its development. And back to the speech. Does not history teach that wealth is the sinews of war? But does it not teach at least as often that wealth and material civilization have been the emasculators of nations and the incitements of their enemies at once, only ensuring the deeper destruction for the rich and cultivated people? Our own overthrow is near at hand to teach us this lesson. For we were the richer section subjugated by the poor, which was shrewd enough to hound the pauper proletaries of a hungry world upon our wealth as their prey. Do some of you exclaim, what, the South, the richer section? Very likely many of you are already so indoctrinated in that tuition of lies against which I shall have to caution you anon that this will be news to you. But nevertheless, it is true. The South was by one quarter, if not one third, the richer section, as was proved by the stubborn evidence of the census returns of the government itself, as managed by our enemies. The wisdom of the New South, then, must be in pursuing the sharp line which divides the neglect from the idolatry of riches. If they be pursued as an end instead of a means, they become your ruin instead of your deliverance. If riches, when acquired, are employed to innervate your manhood with costly pomps and luxuries, instead of being consecrated to the noble uses of charity and public spirit, then the richer the New South becomes, the weaker she will be. The problem you have to learn is how to combine the possession of great wealth with the personal practice of simplicity, hardihood, and self-sacrifice. That people which makes selfish and material good its God is doomed. And here I just want to reiterate on Dabney's point that the South was the richer section prior to the war. That is absolutely true. Again, I mentioned this book last episode, but if you have not read Southern Wealth and Northern Prophets, you need to read that book because Thomas Cattell went in there and dug up census returns. He looked at manufacturing numbers. He looked at all kinds of stuff when he put together an economic picture of the Union prior to the war. So the South was the richer section. Now, with that, a lot of people are going to jump to the conclusion that it was nothing but the plantation owners who consolidated all that wealth. And that's actually not completely true. So, yes, that section was rich, but everyone had an opportunity to climb to that station if that's what they wanted. Now, obviously, here in the 21st century, we would say that's not necessarily a noble goal because that probably entails owning slaves. But even outside of that, 
the income stratification in the South was actually a lot more widely distributed. So a poor Southerner, for example, would actually not be nearly as bad off as a poor New England manufacturer at this time, at least on average. That, that's the way it broke down in the South. Yes, you had a little bit of consolidation of wealth in the hands of the planter class, but at the same time, it was not nearly as consolidated as the big-time manufacturer owners and everything else of the North. So I just wanted to reiterate on that. That is a, a topic that everyone who aspires to the Jeffersonian worldview needs to understand. You can have an agricultural-based society and still have wealth. You do not have to have a totally industrious society or totally industrial society that just produces trinkets to generate wealth. And wealth can be measured in other ways besides money. Again, a lot of people in the South before the war, you had small yeoman farmers. When we talk about who owns America by the Southern agrarians, that's in one of their essays, they actually hit on that, how before the war, land ownership was widely distributed Everybody kind of enjoyed the fruits of their own labor. You had small yeoman farmers who could make a very nice living taking their crops to market. And then all of that was lost after the war because, again, the South was so financially devastated. You had the carpetbag regimes come in and the scallywags, and what they did was they would go in there, jack up property taxes, and confiscate people's land, and then take it for themselves. So it, it was a very nasty period. Like he, So Dabney has given this speech again in 1882, they're really still kind of on the tail end of the official end of Reconstruction, even though, in my opinion, it never really ended. They're they're only about five years removed from the end of that. So he's telling them, look, don't forget, before the war, we were actually the richer section. We were not always in this ruinous state of poverty. And back to the speech. In this world of sin, the spirit of heroic self-sacrifice is the essential condition of national greatness and happiness. The only sure wealth of the state is in cultured and heroic men who intelligently know their duty and are calmly prepared to sacrifice all else, including life, to maintain the right. Well, then did the president of the Confederacy utter these golden words, that the spirit of self-sacrifice is the crown of the civic virtues. I know that there is a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes and their eyelids lifted up, who will boast that their cuteness is in pursuing the main chance, and who flout this virtue of disinterestedness as a week of folly. And yet, for lack of this virtue, their prosperity is ever perishing, and their material civilization is ever, like the tawdry pyrotechnics of some popular feast, burning out its own splendors into ashes, darkness, and a villainous stench of brimstone. The New South, then, needs wealth, but it also needs men, high-minded men, undebauched by wealth, who, like the high privates of the Confederate ranks, shall know how to postpone ease and the delights of culture for the invincible endurance of hardship and danger. And second, subjugation presents to the honorable conquered man another alternative of temptations. The one is that of moral disgust, prompting him to turn with proud disdain from all concern with public affairs and wrap himself like a hermit in the folds of his own self-respect. It is to the best natures that this is most alluring. How attractive is the thought of thus easing one's infinite disgust? How plausible the argument which says, let those who have by fraud or force usurped the helm bear the responsibility of wrecking the ship. But the error of this resort is that it neglects the claims of patriotism and robs the state in the moment of her need of the virtues and faculties most essential to her deliverance. 
These unbending spirits who cannot be reconciled to disgrace are the very ones that can now least be spared. To conquer the burning repugnance towards all the loathsome incidents of misconception, slimy slander, corruption, and ingratitude with which one must meet in serving a state under the eclipse of subjugation may be a cross as bitter as death. But how many of our noblest and best have already borne the cross of death in the same cause? And so just some context here, reading Richard Weaver's The Southern Tradition at Bay, Weaver actually talks about how in the immediate aftermath of the war, a lot of the top minds that were left in the South and a lot of the most heroic men of the South, they basically went into a self-imposed isolation and, and just kind of refused to engage in public debate pretty much whatsoever. And what Dabney is saying is, how can these great men, or how can we stand for these great men to withhold themselves because we, we need their leadership? Now, there is an interesting, at least in my mind, there is an interesting crossover between this and some versions of modern libertarianism, you have, especially the collapsitarians. So you have a segment of libertarians who believe, hey, you know what, we should just either totally withdraw from politics and let the left dominate everything so they can get make it as bad as possible, as quickly as possible, and bring it all down. Or they say we should proactively get involved with that and actually vote the same way because the quicker we can bring about the collapse, the better. Now, I don't really believe in that because you're going to have a ton of suffering and there's no telling what you're going to get after that happens. So is a collapse inevitable? That is a question I personally still struggle with and I don't know the answer to it, but I would prefer to at least have somewhat of a guided crash or a guided landing than just say collapse it and then let the chips fall where they may. Because again, my primary concern is you don't know what's going to come out of that. And just to demonstrate the type of continuity in this thought, Richard Weaver wrote another essay in 1963, so almost about 81 years actually after Dabney gave his speech here at Hamden, Sydney. But in this essay, y'all have heard me mention it a couple of times. Uh, It's called Two Types of American Individualism, and Weaver has this to say about anarchists are people who withdraw completely from the political process in critique of them. So referencing the anarchist here, he says, and he says further, I will cheerfully obey those who know and can do better than I, and in many things those who neither know nor can do so well. These statements, however, are nullified by other professions. The very constitution of the state is evil, the anarchist declares, yet it is not my business to be petitioning the governor or the legislature any more than it is their business to petition me. And so again, you have Southerners who, over a very long period of time, again, 81 years in this case, recognizing that you cannot withdraw and expect good things to happen. Again, from Dabney's standpoint, it's that we need the true leaders of the South to stand up. We need y'all to lead us again. And in Weaver's case, he's saying, if you withdraw from society that totally, then yes, you ought to expect the worst from anything that the government touches. And that's also something else, by extension, that I think libertarians nowadays are extremely guilty of is they say, oh, everything the government touches turns to absolute crap, but they refuse to engage in the process and try to fix it. Many of them because they say, well, that's a, u- a useless fight. And Dabney is actually going to address that train of thought in his next point. But I just wanted to read that little bit of Weaver to show y'all what kind of cultural continuity we have in looking at the world and trying to determine how best to address this problem of disinterested citizens, an apathetic citizenry, and a corrupt government. 
So let's go ahead and get back to the speech, though, and see what Debney has to say. The alternative temptation is yet more seductive to the more supple temperament. This is to exaggerate and pervert the plea of acquiescence in the inevitable, to cry, oh, there is no use nor sense in contending against fate, and on this argument to act the trimmer and turncoat. How much easier is this to the pliable temper? And it may be, how profitable to the pocket? It is so sweet a relief to the lassitude which such a mind experiences at being ever in the self-respecting, the righteous, and the unsuccessful minority. Ah, how tiresome is it to such a man to hold up the standard of principle when it is unsustained by the breeze of popularity. Poor soul, how his arms ache, and how do they crave rest in the arms of the corrupt majority? But even by the light of that policy, which such men make their are, it would be better, while recognizing the inevitable, still to cleave to moral consistency and principle. For I surmise that when you seek a market for your capacities in the forum of the new regime, its managers will tell you that turncoats are decidedly a drug in that market. The demand is utterly overstocked and the market glutted. It is the men who have convictions and who cleave to them who are the article in demand. In demand, even with political adversaries who themselves have no principles. For such men, however venal, soon learn the truth that the turncoat who cannot be trusted to cleave to his principles can as little be trusted to stick to the master who has bought him. And so in a nutshell, what Dabney is saying is that people who just seem to think that something like this is inevitable and cave to it are cowards. And you won't be able to trust them when all the cards are down because they're they're not going to stick by you. They're going to go whichever way the wind blows. They're going to go to the breeze of popularity. So again, this is a big problem, at least in my opinion, this is a big problem with certain segments of the libertarian crowd because they say, look, all this stuff is inevitable. It's already too far gone. We, we just need to totally give up, wait for the collapse, and then we can be the saviors. But if we can't trust them to try to fight it now, why should we be able to trust them whenever that time does come? If it is truly inevitable, how can we trust them when that time does come? So just keep that in mind. I mean, we're, t- we're talking about some really big things here in, in terms of world outlooks and how you approach dealing with a certain problem and who should and should not be trusted. And Dabney here is saying these men learn, or the, the men who employ these types of people, they learn that the turncoat who could not be trusted to cleave to his principles cannot be trusted to cling to them either. So again, just keep that in mind as we move through the rest of the speech. And third... It behooves the New South, in dismissing the animosities of the past, to see to it that they retain all that was true in its principles or ennobling in its example. There are those pretending to belong in this company who exclaim, Let us bury the dead past. Its issues are all antiquated and of no more practical significance. Let us forget the passions of the past. We are in a new world. Its new questions alone concern us. But I rejoin, Be sure that the former issues are really dead before you bury them. There are issues which cannot die without the death of the people, of their honor, their civilization, and their greatness. Take care that you do not bury too much while burying the dead past, that you do not bury the inspiring memories of great patriots whose actions, whether successful or not, are the eternal glory of your race and section. Be careful not to bury the influence of their virtues and the guiding precedents of their histories. 
Will you bury the names and memories of a Jackson and Lee and their noble army of martyrs? Will you bury true history whose years are those of the God of truth? This is one point on which you insist too little, a point which is vital to the young citizens of the New South. That is, that he shall not allow the dominant party to teach him a perverted history of the past contest. This is a mistake of which you are in imminent peril. With all the astute activity of their race, our conquerors strain every nerve to preoccupy the ears of all America with the false version of affairs which suits the purposes of their usurpation. With a gigantic sweep of mendacity, this literature aims to falsify or misrepresent everything from the facts of history to the principles of the former Constitution as admitted in the days of freedom by all statesmen of all parties. The characters and motives of our patriots, the purposes of parties, the very essential names of rights and virtues and vices are all perverted and misportrayed. The whole sway of their commercial and political ascendancy is exerted to fill the South with this false literature. Its sheets come up like frogs of Egypt into our houses, our bedchambers, our very kneading troughs. Now, against this deluge of perversions, I solemnly warn young men of the South, not for our sakes, but for their own. Even if the memory of the defeated has no rights, even if historical truth has no prerogatives, even if it were the same to you that the sires whose blood fills your veins and whose names you bear be written down as traitors by the pen of slanderous history, still, it is essential to your own future that you shall learn the history of the past truthfully. For the institutions which are to be, however, unlike those which have been, must have a causal relation to them and must, in some sense, be the progeny of them. And on this point, I am honestly so ashamed to say that we Southerners, by and large, have failed to keep our vigilance. You have situations now where, in even small-town Southern colleges, people like Eric Foner are writing the history books. So I got my associate's degree from a community college in Texas. When I took my United States history class, literally Eric Foner was the author of the textbook that was used in the class. Now, for those who don't know, Foner is an, is an openly avowed communist. He despises the South. He despises pretty much anything to do with the South. And that's who's writing history books for Southern intellectual inst institutions. So unfortunately, we did not heed Dabney's warning. And as a result of that, in the modern South, especially among the younger crowd, I, I would say anybody maybe about age 35 and below, depending on where they went to school, you're definitely starting to see a buy-in of the nationalist myth and you're starting to see even people of the section condemn their ancestors as nothing better than traitors who deserve the fate that they got and that that is such a heartbreaking realization that i have when communicating with younger people from the south nowadays they don't know their history they don't know their heritage and because of that they buy into the new england version of american history and and it, i mean it, it's starting to so it's rewards now when even Southerners are calling for monuments to be removed and everything else. So when I was at Fort Hood, my wife and I were friends with another young couple who, who were native, natively from Texas. Both of them were natively from Texas. And the wife of that couple has come out over the last couple of years, 100% in favor of tearing down monuments and everything else, because she does not know history and you cannot convince her that she's wrong because she went to college, she has a bachelor's degree, she thinks she knows everything. And, and it's, it, I mean, it's sad, because 
that level of indoctrination, again, Southern schools are teaching Northern histories. They're not teaching Davis and Alexander Stevens. They're not, they're not teaching it. And it, I mean, it's sad. It's sad. It is a cultural genocide that has taken place and everybody's okay with it because the Confederacy was nothing but a bunch of traitors in the mainstream opinion. So we're losing sight of what made the Southern region unique. As I mentioned at, at the start of the episode, we're losing sight of all that because we did not heed the warnings of the past. But back to the speech. The chrysalis is very unlike its progeny, but nonetheless, its traits determine those of the gorgeous butterfly. The acorn is not like a tree, yet its species determines the shape and qualities of the monarch of the forest. Tomorrow's configuration of the planets may be very dissimilar from that of today, but it will be rigidly consequential thereon. Hence, the astronomer who misconceives and misstates the positions of the orbits today must inevitably err in his prediction of their conjunctions tomorrow. So if public men will gratify their spite or their spirit of revenge or their lust of sectional power by misrepresenting the late events, they thereby condemn themselves to fatal blunderings and mistakes in prognosticating that future, which can only be the caused sequel to this. If you would not be mere blunderers in your new constructions, then you must understand aright the structure of those recent actions on which they must found themselves. You will seek to learn them not from a Greeley or a Henry Wilson, but from a Stevens and a Davis. While you do not allow your judgment to be hoodwinked by even the possible exaggerations of your own patriots, still less will you yield your minds to the malignant fables of those partisans who think they can construct history as unscrupulously as a political ring. Our age presents the strange instance of a numerous party who think they can circumvent the restless forces of truth by systematically misnaming facts and fallacies, who are deliberately building a whole system of empire on the substitution of light for darkness and darkness for light, of good for evil and evil for good. They call that master in our government, which was servant, that patriotism which was treason, and that treason which was true, law-preserving patriotism, and that aggression which was righteous self-defense. If you wish to be buried deeper than thrice buried Troy beneath the final mountains of both defeat and shame, go with these architects of detraction. They are but arraying themselves against that unchangeable God who has said, the lying tongue is but for a moment, but the lip of truth shall be established forever. And again, to show the continuity of thought in the Southern society or in the Southern mind back during this time, all the way back in the 1840s or 1850s, John C. Calhoun was calling this out. He saw what would happen. He said that eventually you would get to a point where nationalism had so ravaged the Union and that the general government would be so all-powerful that if you stood with your home and your kith and your kin, that you would be looked at as a traitor to the metaphysical Union and that service to the Union would be valued over service to your native state, over service to your community, your neighborhood, your friends, your family. And that, that is a disturbing thought because now, even in modern America, people definitely have that opinion that, I mean, look at January 6th. So if you do anything at all against the general government now, you are treated as the great leper. I mean, it, it is terrible where we've gotten with this. But again, Dabney is not saying anything new. Just to show you the continuity of thought, Calhoun's calling that out in the 1850s. Dabney's given this speech in 1882. And then again, the Weaver stuff that we went over was written in 1963. 
this has been the struggle of American history. It's nationalism versus local self-determination or state self-determination. So we have to understand this is a very long-range fight, and it's not going to be an easy fight, but it is a fight worth engaging in, not withdrawing from, but to engage it and meet it head on. But let's go ahead and get back to the speech. Only by loyalty, piety, and virtue will the New South survive. I have admitted, young gentlemen, that constitutions and laws may change, but honor, justice, and right are immutable. Be loyal to these in all novel emergencies, and you will act safely. If this virtue, the foundation of all the civic, exists in you, it will, it must manifest itself most plainly in reverence and enthusiasm for the heroic and the self-sacrificing of your own people and state. Their actions have placed the right before you in corporate with all the definiteness of outlines and vividness of coloring which belong to concrete realities. Their actions concern your hearts by virtue of all the ties of neighborhood and patriotism. As long as the hearts of the New South thrill with the generous, though defeated endurance of the men of 1861, as long as they cherish these martyrs of constitutional liberty as the glory of their state and its history, you will be safe from any base decadence. If the generation that is to come ever learns to be ashamed of these men because they were overpowered by fate, then this, I say, will be the moral death of Virginia, a death on which there will wait no resurrection. But I do not fear this. I recall what my own eyes witnessed at the last great civic pomp in which I was present. This was the installment of that statue of Jackson near our state capitol, which Virginia received as the tribute of British statesmanship and culture to her illustrious dead. At this ceremonial, there were gathered almost the whole intelligence and beauty of what was left of the old commonwealth. As the long procession wound through the streets, marshaled and headed by General Joseph E. Johnston under the mild glory of our October sun, while the atmosphere was palpitating with military music and the whole city was gone upon its housetops, it was easy to perceive that all eyes and all hearts were centering upon one sole part of the pageant. This focus was not the illustrious figure that headed it. The commander in so many historical battles bestriding his charger with his inimitable martial grace. Nor was it the cluster containing the remnant of Jackson's staff. We might have supposed that we would receive some reflected distinction from the luminary to which we had been satellites so near and that some romantic curiosity might direct itself to those who had habitually seen him under fire, heard and borne those orders which had decided memorable victories and bivouacked under the same blanket with him. But no eyes sought us. Then came hobbling a company of 230 grizzled men with empty sleeves, wooden legs, scarred faces, and hands twisted into every distortion which the fiery fancy of the rifle ball could invent clad in the rough garb of a laboring yeomanry, their faces bronzed with homely toil. This was the company for which every eye waited. And as it passed, the mighty throng was moved as the trees of the forest are moved by the wind. The multitudinous white arms waved their superb welcome, and the thundering cheer rolled with the column from end to end of the great city. It was the remnant of the Stonewall Brigade. That was the explanation. This was the tribute which the sons, the daughters, the mothers of Virginia paid to sturdy heroism and defeat. And as I saw this, my heart said with an exultant bound, 
There is life in the old land yet. And so that concludes the New South speech by R.L. Dabney, and thus for now concludes our study and critique of the corporate form. Uh, if y'all want to get a free copy of this particular speech, I actually found this on the Abbeville Institute. If you just go in there and search R.L. Dabney New South, you should be able to find it. And if you like what Dabney had to say and you want to do some more research on your own, kind of studying all this and critiquing it, Dabney actually released a series of books, or, or I'm not sure, they may have been re released posthumously, but there's a series of books, it's called Dabney's Discussions, and I think there's four, maybe five volumes of this. This speech, for sure, it was in volume four, so I'll link to that. But I do want y'all to go out there and read Southern Wealth and Northern Profits at the very least, because again, that is a very short book. It's roughly 100 pages. You could probably knock it out in an afternoon, but it, very short book, and it does paint a very dazzling economic picture of the Union as it existed before the war. So you can understand things were not always the way that they are now when it comes to the poverty in the South and everybody looking at the South as backwards rednecks, for lack of a better term. So that's your homework for, for this. Again, this concludes our formal discussion of it, at least for the time being. We probably will revisit this topic at some point in the future. But for now, this is going to conclude our study and critique of the corporate form. So it, I want y'all to do your homework, though, and then hit me up with any questions you have or any comments you have about all this. Even if you disagree, hit me up. Let me know what you think, because this is a vitally important thing to understand in our modern world, because we are so dominated by corporations and big government. So thank you all again so much for your time, and I will talk to you all next time. Please remember, if you find value in the podcast, to consider becoming a supporting listener today. And don't forget to help fuel the Jeffersonian revolution by using the link in the show notes page to purchase your gold backs. And all right, with another episode in the books, thank you so much again for tuning in, and I'll talk to you all next time.